Hello and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks so much for listening to us today. How you doing, Ben? I'm having a pretty good day today, Sarah. We made another D&D cookbook recipe today. Actually, we made two. Mm-hmm. Um, we made the Amphail Braised Beef and Otix Skillet Fried Spiced Potatoes, two different recipes from the human cuisine part of the book. So clearly the most exotic and strange of the foods. <laughs> and uh, I think they turned out pretty good. I would agree. Um, the roast was like a, a pot roast, a beef pot roast. It yeah, was good. Lots of um, onion and pear in that recipe. Yeah, very um, tasty. Yeah. So I've had a pretty good day. How about yourself? Well, I'm feeling pretty good. Do you know why? Why? We have a new patron. Oh, cool. So shout out to Yane Voss, our latest patron. You can head over to patreon.com slash Podcast and become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Thanks, Yane. Thank you. What are we watching today, Ben? Today, Sarah, we are watching X, The Unknown from 1956, directed by Leslie Norman. I'm having like high school algebra flashbacks <laughs> and that in itself is a horror movie. <laughs> Solve for X, the unknown. Exactly. So this is a Hammer movie uh, from Hammer Film Productions in Britain. and um, So I'm also having flashbacks to high school shop. <laughs> sure. Also what, a horror movie. What you... <laughs> What you should be having flashbacks to is the Quatermass Experiment from Ah, 1955. Yes. We really liked that one, right? Yeah, it was a very interesting British film. Mm -hmm. Um, Kind of a return to horror a little bit for the British. Um, Everything up until then had just kind of been like enough to uh, spook a British man's monocle off. Right, yeah, not very, uh, not, not a lot of bite. Yeah, but the Quatermass experiment was a kind of a shift, and it also brought in science fiction into the British horror milieu, I guess. Yeah, I think we just liked how devoted it was to kind of its, not really nihilism, cynicism. It had a very cynical worldview that is very, like, appropriate for horror movies. Yeah, um, so the and qu- also pro- post-World War II a little bit. Yes, very much so. So the Quatermass experiment... Uh, from Hammer Film Productions, uh, was, like this movie, a film with a title that emphasized the X in the title uh, because Hammer wanted you to know that it had gotten an X rating from the BBFC, which meant that only patrons aged 16 and over could see them. And So solving for X means that X equals 16. Right. Yes, precisely. <laughs> um, very good, Sarah. You've solved the algebra riddle. Uh, of Fantastic. the of the British Board of Film Censors, in the past, like British films had like avoided the X rating because it was sort of seen as like bad for your movie because then it's like oh oh dear scandalous scandalous yeah exactly and Hammer realized that if you were in the business of making horror films, rather than try to avoid 
such a rating. You wanted to go for it and then promote it and then be like, yes, that's right. This is the movie with an X rating. And they what found you out. What you to do about it? Yeah, exactly. Come see it. That's what. And that's exactly what happened. It was a very successful marketing campaign and it was recognized by Hammer that like, oh, instead of like trying to follow what the censors tell us, we should do the opposite because that'll just get more excited publicity for the film. Like if you're making horror movies, moral outrages about your movie are a good thing, uh, which was a relatively new way of thinking uh, at the time, uh, certainly in Britain. Now, the Quatermass experiment was an adaptation of a BBC TV serial from 1953 called The Quatermass Experiment, but spelt with an E before the X. For more on The Quatermass Experiment, you can listen to episode 182. To sort of briefly summarize, uh, that TV serial had been a groundbreaking sci-fi TV serial on the BBC that like really pushed British television forward, got tons of great reviews, was a huge rating smash. It had been created by a writer named Nigel Neal, and it starred Reginald Tate as Dr. Bernard Quatermass. When Hammer adapted the serial to film, uh, they cast American actor Brian Donlevy as Quatermass, um, which Neal was not super happy about. Um, he objected to the way that the movie changed Quatermass's character from kind of like a book smart guy to kind of a mm, not really a cowboy, but just kind of like a I'm going to do it. Yeah, I'm just going <laughs> to go for it. I'm just going to do it regardless of what you say. Yeah, a much more American personality. Yeah. The reason Hammer had done this is that for the early part of its existence, Hammer had a deal with Lippert Pictures to distribute their films in America. And it was Lippert Pictures' idea to send American actors over to the UK to star in Hammer's movies so that they could be more easily marketed in the US. Now, the Quatermass Experiment was not distributed by Lippert. Uh, it was, in fact, Hammer's first film that wasn't distributed by Lippert in the U.S. It was distributed by United Artists. But the basic formula idea uh, still seemed sound to Hammer, so they went ahead with Brian Donlevy. And despite Nigel Neal's objections to the adaptation, uh, the Quatermass Experiment was the highest-grossing film Hammer had ever made up to that point sending a very big message to the studio that like, hey, knock off the kitchen sink dramas and make more horror film, which, you know, sure brings us to here. Yeah. Now, at the same time that the Quatermass Experiment movie was in theaters, uh, Neil had written the sequel TV serial Quatermass 2 for the BBC, and it started like airing at the same time. So it was kind of like a, a marketing thing because, you know, the, the first movie adapts the serial which was like a six episode thing into like a 90 minute movie so it was like oh hey get caught up by going to see the movie in theaters and then tune in for the sequel on tv kind of thing hammer of course was eager to make their own Quatermass sequel and so rather than engage with nigel neal and work on adapting Quatermass 2 they just like went right into production on x the unknown Oh, so this is a sequel? It was supposed to be. Oh, okay. Yeah, because I thought the sequel movie was like Quatermass and the Pit or something. That's the third one. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> There's like five of them. Yeah. Um, so they started working on X the Unknown, 
uh, again, going with that, you know, X title. And since they weren't adapting a serial, Hammer had to come up with the story all by themselves. So to come up with the script, Hammer turned to employee Jimmy Sangster, which was a somewhat unusual decision, which will be clear in a moment. See, Sangster was born in 1927, and his first job in the film industry was as a clapper boy at age 16. Okay, so the person who makes the clapper go, yeah, this is the start of this reel. Yeah, so um, nowadays the clapper is usually referred to as a slate, and the person who does that job is the second assistant camera operator. But when he was 16, Jimmy Sangster was just a clapper boy. After serving with the Royal Air Force in World War II, uh, he went back to the film industry and worked as a third assistant director for Ealing Studios before coming to Hammer as a production assistant in 1949. From there, he worked his way up to assistant director, then second unit director, and then to production manager, um, which is the person on a film who's basically in charge of like the bureaucracy of the movie in a way, mm-hmm. like scheduling, making sure everyone's getting their paychecks, making sure the locations are like you know, forms are done, like running the production office, really. So when Anthony Hines, the producer of the Quatermass Experiment and now X the Unknown, approached Sangster to write the picture, Sangster replied, I'm not a writer. I'm a production manager. Yeah. Hines' response was, listen, just come up with some ideas. And if they're good, we'll pay you. And if they're not, we won't. You're already being paid as a production manager, so you can't lose. Something tells me he loses. No, they must have liked his ideas because Sangster ended up writing the movie and becoming a regular writer for Hammer from that point on. Huh. Yeah. Now, despite the initial intentions that this film would be a Quatermass sequel, Nigel Neal refused to give Hammer permission to use the character. See, Neal had just left his position as a staff writer at the BBC to write for them as a freelancer in order to gain greater control over his work. Mm -hmm. Um, He had felt he didn't get enough recognition for the first serial, that kind of thing, and was eager to, like, have a bit more of a tighter leash on Quatermass, which he kind of saw as, like, his baby, and he became very protective of. Um, And given that he had been displeased with the first wildly successful movie... Um, he decided to not cooperate with Hammer on this. So Dr. Bernard Quatermass of the British Rocket Group became Dr. Adam Royston of the Atomic Energy Laboratory. They have his first name as Adam, Mm. and he works in, like, nuclear research. Mm -hmm. For the release of X the Unknown, uh, Hammer continued their strategy of hiring an American actor. Now, because this wasn't Dr. Quatermass anymore, they didn't need to get Brian Donlevy. Uh, They could get someone else. So they made a deal with RKO to co-finance the picture, um, which had a very meager budget of a $60,000 US, which is putting us like in Roger Corman territory. Yeah. And uh, so the deal was for RKO to co-finance and also to loan them one of their stars. In this case, an actor named Dean Jagger. Any relation to Mick Jagger? No. Uh, Dean Jagger was an American, born on a farm in Ohio in 1903. He grew up wanting to be an actor and studied acting in Chicago, and then appeared in vaudeville, on stage, and in radio, before making his Broadway debut in 1925. 
1934, uh, Jagger signed with Paramount Pictures, began appearing in movies. Uh, we've actually seen him before because in 1936, he was borrowed by the Halperin brothers for Revolt of the Zombies, oh my God. in which he played the main villain, the uh, like Bala Lugosi stand-in who makes all the zombies in like, where are they? They're in Angkor in that movie. Yeah, in like Thailand. His biggest role uh, was as the title character in the 1940 biopic Brigham Young for 20th Century Fox. And he received an Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actor for his role in the 1949 World War II picture 12 O'Clock High, which was also for Fox. His career in the 1950s was largely as a character actor, um, rarely a lead. Um, so him appearing as a lead in this film, like it's, it's sort of the kind of thing where it's like, well, for your cheap sci-fi UK B movie, this is a star, but you know, in America, nobody gives a fuck about Dean Jagger. Um, so I, I think that kind of led to Jagger throwing his weight around a little bit. Um, his salary for X the Unknown was $30,000. You know, half the budget. Oh my God. Yeah. And that wasn't the only little thing that Jagger influenced when it came time to the production of this movie. See, initially, Joseph Luzzi was set to direct the picture. Uh, He was an American, a high school classmate of Nicholas Ray and a major figure in the New York political theater scene of the 1930s. In 1935, he visited the Soviet Union to study Russian drama, and in the 1940s, he often worked with German playwright Bertolt Brecht. In 1946, he joined the U.S. Communist Party. His first feature film was the 1947 allegorical picture The Boy with Green Hair, starring a very young Dean Stockwell as the titular boy who wakes up one morning to discover that he has green hair and everyone hates him for it. Uh, I'm sure that has nothing to do with uh, the McCarthyism and Red Scare going on at Mm -hmm, that time. mm -hmm. In 1951, Losey directed a remake of M. Again. Nothing to do with communist witch hunts, yeah. And um, so he was on contract at RKO as a director. Um, and while working at RKO, uh, Howard Hughes offered him a project called I Married a Communist. <laughs> Losey turned it down. Yeah. Only to discover later that Howard Hughes offered the film to everyone at RKO who he suspected of being a communist under the assumption that if they turned it down, they were indeed a communist. Oh my God. What the fuck? Now, in response to learning this, Hughes held Losey to his contract at RKO, but stopped offering him assignments, effectively cutting him off from work. Yep. What an asshole. Huack began closing in on Losey since he was, you know, friends with Bertolt Brecht, who'd been called in front of Huack. He was friends with Dalton Trumbo, who had been called in front of Huack. Um, you know, he was a member of the U.S. Communist Party. So um, they were very eager to get testimony from Losey uh, so that he, they could learn all of his, you know, known associates and noted communist figures who he was friends with. Sure. So for more about HUAC, we mm. actually have a bonus episode on our Patreon about it. Now, Losey decided rather than answer the subpoena, 
uh, he was just going to move with his family to Britain. <laughs> so he began directing genre pictures there under the name Joseph Walton. So under the name Joseph Walton, uh, Losey started production on X the Unknown, doing all the pre-production work, casting the film, even shooting for a couple of days before star Dean Jagger arrived. And Jagger refused to work with Losey because Losey had been blacklisted. Okay. So Losey was taken off the picture, uh, officially for the reason of illness. Oh, jeez, Louise. Uh, and then he was replaced by director Leslie Norman. <laughs> a completely normal person. <laughs> the most normal person ever. So Leslie Norman was English and had begun his career sweeping the cutting room floors at Ealing Studios when he was 16, uh, rising up to become an editor by the time he was 19. And he worked through the 1930s as an editor, fought in the British Army in World War II, rising to the rank of major. And after the war, he returned to editing and was promoted to the role of producer at Ealing Studios in 1949, often writing the films he produced as well. Um, and he produced a series of hits through the late 40s and early 50s. He began directing with The Night My Number Came Up in 1955 for Ealing, and then stepped in to direct X the Unknown at Hammer. Now, Norman was a technically proficient director, but he was not popular with the cast or crew. Reportedly, he did not work well with people. Jagger refused to be directed by him. Jeez Louise. Now, not in a, we have to fire this guy way, like Losey, just in a, like, I'm not going to listen to you on set and I'm just going to do my own thing kind of way. This sounds like a real, like, mess. A real mess, Ben. Norman, meanwhile, made it very clear to everyone that he did not care for the picture uh, or, like, its concept or ideas, and he had just taken the job for the money. Um, he complained about the cast, telling some of them, openly that he would not have cast them if he had been on the project from the beginning. Um, and he was verbally abusive to the crew, which was not something that the hammer crew had ever really experienced from a director before. And so while the producers actually felt he turned out a very good picture with X, the unknown, uh, they never invited him to work for them again. Yeah. Don't be dicks. The film's supporting cast included longtime Australian character actor, Leo McKern, as well as actor Anthony Newley, who went on to become a successful songwriter in the 1960s. He wrote the lyrics to the theme song for Goldfinger, and he also wrote the lyrics to the songs in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Another member of the supporting cast, Ian McNaughton, would go on to much greater success as a producer and a director, specifically as the producer of the television series Monty Python's Flying Circus, uh, as well as the director of all but the first four episodes of that show, as well as their first feature film, and now for something completely different. That also seems like a real, like, chaotic place to work, TBH. <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. Actor Fraser Hines would go on to gain fame playing Jamie McCrimmon, a companion to the second Doctor on Doctor Who. Oh, okay. Now, X the Unknown had predictable problems with the BBFC, uh, who considered the picture outrageous <laughs> and sickening. Perfect. Their suggestion was that more should be done with, like, onlookers reactions uh implying the horror rather than actually showing anything uh and they commented that if the picture was shot 
and shown as intended. At least no one could say the audience wasn't getting their money's worth. Well, there you go. Put that put that tagline on the movie poster. Uh, You'll get your money's worth. (laughs) BBFC. Right. The censor in charge of this film uh, actually brought it to the attention of the president of the BBFC because according to his memo to the president, the censor felt that like he thought this movie was pretty over the top and outrageous and sickening, but like he considered himself someone who had like a pretty good stomach for this kind of thing. Oh, so he's so maybe like, like hey, can someone else? Yeah, 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 yeah. Can someone else look at this who maybe isn't as like into horror as I am because <laughs> I'm into horror and this is too much for me. Interesting. The film's musical score is composed by James Bernard, who had scored The Quatermass Experiment, um, which notably was one of the first films to really use like strings Mm -hmm. as like a horror instrument. And the cinematography is in black and white by Gerald Gibbs. So the film's problems began to kick into high gear when it came time to release it and RKO just sort of ceased to exist in the meanwhile. What? The once proud studio had been through some very hard financial times through the 1950s under the leadership of Howard Hughes, who just kind of used it as like a way for him to shoot expensive um, pet projects that were largely like B-movies starring sexy babes that would like, he would then perfectionist edit over and over again for like three to four years before releasing them and then they wouldn't make enough money back, that kind of thing. See, the outlaw for a pretty good example of that right um so this these financial issues led to a lawsuit against hughes from the shareholders for mismanagement as well as walt disney pulling out of his distribution Mm. deal with rko to distribute his own films under his own studio buena vista so to forestall the lawsuit hughes bought out the shareholders oh my god for 23.5 million dollars Uh, But then he was soon forced by his own financial circumstances to sell the studio to the General Tire and Rubber Company for $25 million. Oh, my God. Wait, so he sold for $25 and bought for like $2.5 or whatever? He he bought for $23.5, so he made a profit of $1.5 million. Now, the General Tire and Rubber Company uh, was already in the media business, Uh, Hence their interest in RKO. You see, they owned a number of radio stations and television stations across the United States. Sure. And so they bought RKO for the value of its film library, which could then be used for easy programming on the TV stations that they already owned or sold to other TV stations in syndication packages. This was the first time this had been done. Yeah. And this was sort of a landmark move in Mm -hmm. the history of Hollywood, signaling to studios that their old libraries still had profit potential. And suddenly the whole way Hollywood did business changed because suddenly who owned what movies became important. Yeah. And that's still true to this day where we have things like Disney buying an entire studio 20th century fox so they can have all nine star wars movies on their streaming service and not be missing one yeah also x-men right yeah (laughs) still um general tire was saddled with finishing the projects that rko already had in progress such as the genghis khan epic the conqueror starring john wayne and yellowface as temujin 
which was shot in the desert downwind of nuclear test sites. So everyone died. Yeah, everyone who made that movie died of cancer. So General Tyre announced that it was shutting down the production and distribution arms of RKO, keeping the rights to the film library and keeping a holding company in existence called RKO General to serve as like an umbrella for the film library as well as their TV and radio stations. The actual studio facilities, like the physical sound stages, were sold to Desi Arnaz and Lucille Ball to become the Desilu studio lot, uh, which produced a number of television shows through the 1960s, such as Mission Impossible and Star Trek. Yeah. So RKO could no longer distribute X the Unknown in the U.S., so Hammer began shopping it around to other studios. Warner Brothers bought it. Oh. But release was held up when General Tire sued Warner Brothers, arguing that they owned the rights to the unreleased film as part of the RKO library. And therefore, even though they had no intention in distributing it, Warner Brothers would have to pay them for the U.S. distribution rights. No. (laughs) (laughs) So once all the legal issues were settled... X the Unknown was released on November 6th, 1956. It was a big hit, and surprising everyone, it got great reviews. Earning praise for the cinematography, the shockingly grisly scenes, the pacing, and for capturing the mood of late 1950s Britain, uh, which I will remind you, this is during a period like the Suez crisis was happening at this point. The British empire was kind of crumbling uh, at an ever increasing pace. Yep. Um, Countries wanting their independence. uh, They're in kind of like a tight economic situation. Um, People, you know, pinching pennies. Um, There was generally, you know, kind of a grim atmosphere in Britain at the time. Yeah. Kind of a feeling like, well, we got through world war two, but, for what? For what? Yeah. Hence uh, that growing trend of nihilism and cynicism. Mm-hmm. Now, X the Unknown is not streaming anywhere. Oh. But it is available on Blu-ray from Scream Factory, the horror imprint of Shout Factory. Scream Factory coming to the rescue. Mm-hmm. Well, folks, hopefully you can find a copy and you can watch along. You are going to hear a brief musical interlude. And when we come back, we will discuss X the Unknown. From 1956, directed by Leslie Norman, a completely normal person. (laughs) See you on the other side, everybody. It just sounds like a name that an alien came up with. He's not a communist. Welcome back to Scream Scene, everybody. We just finished watching X, The Unknown from 1956, directed by Leslie Norman. Sarah, what did you think? I really enjoyed this. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. It gives you kind of everything you want. (laughs) You can definitely tell it's made by the same people as the Quatermass experiment. Like, it's very much in the same mold. Yes, 
like in the same way that like Iron Man and the Incredible Hulk are in the same mold, you know, the way that like Marvel movies are different from each other, but like, you know what you're getting when you go to one. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. I was more reminded of uh, some of the many, many Godzilla movies. Oh, sure. There's definitely towards the end of this movie, um, particularly the climax has the feel of like late 60s, early 70s, like kaiju movies from Toho um, in like a very specific like way. Yeah. Um, And not in the way that we're saying like, oh, those movies ripped off. X, no, no, it's, like it just it's just some interesting parallels going on. Yeah, yeah. So this time we're not dealing with outer space. We're dealing with inner space. Right. <laughs> um, but uh, Sarah, why don't you tell us what the movie's about? We are set on a Scottish base out on the moors. They're doing some military training with uh, Geiger counter specifically. The idea is the commander will go out and put um, a radioactive but non-harmful uh, thing out there and someone will go out and find it, blah, blah, blah. While they're doing that, their Geiger counters start to note something that isn't one of their test cartridges. And it's like something's coming to the surface when suddenly explosion, <laughs> a fissure forms in the earth. Um, and, uh, there are a couple of soldiers blown away by the blast. Dr. Adam Royston is called in to help investigate. Now he works at the nearby atomic energy lab. Um, he has some personal work going on in a side lab, a shed, a shed as you keep, as you do with your atomic experiments. Um, but he works at the Atomic Energy Laboratory, and his personal work that he does in this shed is focused on how to basically diffuse atomic energy without having an explosion. Yeah, it's essentially something that would, like, render atomic bombs inert. Um, you kind of get the feeling, based on some things he says in the movie, that, like, that's kind of his his goal. Like, he's trying to, like, redeem atomic science from the bomb. Mm-hmm. That night, a local boy is out in the woods with a pal, and uh, they've dared each other to run up to this spooky tower. And as this boy named Willie goes, um, he sees something horrific in the woods, and he runs back. The next morning, his mother finds him, and he is in a coma and has radiation burns on him. So she brings him into the hospital, and Royston uh, is brought in because atomic stuff going on radiation burns you know bring it bring in the expert and he confirms yes these are radiation burns he finds where the boy went and in investigating the area he finds one of his personal samples dun 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 he runs back to the shed and it turns out this mysterious thing um this x unknown factor broke into his lab shed and took his sample and eat the energy from it yeah so like all of his radioactive material isn't radioactive anymore which yeah. is like not how, how things, things work. work now with this theft um the uk atomic energy commission sends in inspector mcgill mr mcgill well he 
It, it's a running gag in the movie. Well, he calls him, um, Royston calls him Mac, right. regardless. They go to the hospital, and uh, turns out the boy, Willie, has died. Um, and it's pretty tragic. Then the camera kind of wanders over to a, a, an x-ray technician uh, getting cozy with a nurse. Yeah, they're they're in the um, like radiation therapy room. So I guess the like idea is like the door to that room doesn't have any windows on it, right? Because you want to keep it safe and you can like, you know, it's all soundproofed and locked up and lead shielded and everything. So it's, you know, the ideal place on the hospital grounds to um, get busy. Yeah. And they start to get busy when suddenly the equipment starts detecting some radioactive energy going on. And so the technician goes in to investigate and he gets melted on screen. Just full on. um, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, exactly. Just uh, and the nurse is like screaming. She is scarred for life um, mentally. Uh, She is protected on the other side of this shielding. But in any case, they find that this thing, um, not the thing Mm. from another movie, but just this thing got into the lab and specifically found the radioactive material that was being held in this room. It's like a 1950s sci-fi locked room mystery when these things are happening, because it's like, well, but the room was sealed and there's no way in or out other than like this air grate which is like cemented to the wall and like there's no way it could have gotten in here and same thing with like the doctor's lab and like Royston starts being like well it could if it was like you know shape-shifting shape and everyone's like okay Royston all right so Royston believes that this something is shape-shifting and is radiation powered and it eats radioactive things for food Um, His theory further is that it existed before the Earth fully formed and it uh, has been evolving under Earth's crust ever since. Um, It's come to the surface and is trying to subsist on these food sources. Um, Now, I'll just like put a little pause there because Royston says, you know, there's like energy in the Earth. Uh, And every 50 years, we have like a big earthquake and a fissure forms on the Earth's crust. And it's like earthquakes don't happen every 50 years, my guy. They happen. They happen way more frequently. Well, I think his argument is that like there's a because he he ties it to like Earth's orbit around the sun. Yeah. That like on this particular orbit cycle, there's always an earthquake so like yeah earthquakes happen all the time but like there's always one set your watch at this time that'll open up a fissure and his theory is that in those 50 years you know we don't feel that orbital change but maybe down beneath the crust they do and then that's what draws them to the surface or something yeah and that all the other times they came out and looked around and were like is there any food up here for us it was like no but now we have the atomic bomb so so Munch time. Yes. Back at the pit. Um, there are two soldiers on watch and they are killed um, <laughs> by the creature, by the thing, um, by the X unknown. Um, Royston and the team conclude that, okay, it's going back into the pit and so must we. Now he has a colleague named Elliot. Um, he has a little like character arc where you know he's an administrator and 
um, the big boss at the lab wants him to stay an administrator, but he wants to be a scientist, and Royston's letting him do some science things so he can try to be a scientist, and whatever. But suffice it to say, Elliot is like, cool, I'm going to go down into the pit. The big boss administrator is his dad. Oh, I missed that. Yeah, so the boss administrator is Dr. I think his name is John Elliot, and then the younger guy is Peter Elliot. They usually, throughout the movie, call Peter Elliot Peter, and the other guy, the older guy, Elliot. Um, but that's that's the deal going on there. It's that his dad wants him to follow in his own footsteps as a boring paper pusher. But Peter wants to go down into the pit. <laughs> it's weird that this one isn't Quatermass in the pit. Yeah, right? That's what I was thinking. So down in the pit. <laughs> How many times have I said that? Um, Peter goes down and he confirms that, yes, there's some kind of creature. He almost gets caught, but he gets pulled up in time. Now the army, you know, this is on an army base, this pit. And the army has orders that if they find a creature down there, it's time to destroy that creature and seal up the pit. And they do this with flamethrowers and explosions and then some concrete. And like, it's already been explained in the movie by this point that like the creature is a pure energy being well we find out later that's not really a great description but at first we're told it's a pure energy being and so it feeds on pure energy that's why it's going for radiation so someone needs to tell the army that fire and explosions are energy yes (laughs) so with that and the army kind of going like hey we did it um, Mac is about to be sent home back to London, except he overhears a phone call coming into the police. The thing is back and loose and has attacked and melted a car, including the four passengers inside. So he is able to deduce that the thing is headed to Royston's lab, like his actual lab, not his shed, for the uh, cobalt there. And it's at this point that we finally see what this thing is and i would say that's more akin to the blob than anything we've seen before so i will henceforth be calling it the blob but it's not like the capital b blob trademark of like that steve mcqueen movie that's coming in the future this is just like lowercase blob you should call it a blob yeah it's a blob not the blob yeah 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 Yeah. awesome so a blob (laughs) Uh, And it's clear that it's growing larger as it eats. And now that it has eaten this cobalt, it's very large, very easy to spot right away. Now, Royston and his team have deduced that, you know, this blob, this this one blob, um, it will leave the fissure to go eat and then head back home to the fissure, uh, to the pit, and chill out until it needs to go eat again. So they know, okay, it's come to our lab, it's gotten the cobalt, we can't stop it. But we know where it's going to be. So towns are evacuated and sent into shelters, like the church, as this blob goes back to its pit. And they're trying to figure out, okay, how can we stop this? And Royston goes, well, I mean, like my experiments of like trying to neutralize uh, atomic material haven't really gone well. Every time he's done it, um, it kind of either doesn't work or the 
radioactive material explodes, which is what he's trying to avoid. So he goes back to his lab with Elliot to continue the experiments, and again, still, the canister still explodes, but it's no use. They have to try something, so they resolve, okay, we'll try this on this blob, and if it explodes, it explodes. You know, we think we figured out how to make it not explode, but, you know, we gotta do something. They come up with this plan to get some radioactive material, put it in a the back of a jeep, and then get that jeep close to the pit, draw this blob out, and then hit it with these scanners that put some, like, radio waves, radio frequency waves to it to neutralize it. And this is going to go all right, except the jeep operator can't seem to work the jeep, so Elliot steps in, and now we have Peter Elliot specifically. So now we have a personal investment in the person driving the Jeep, which works because uh, his tires get stuck and he almost gets got by this blob, but he manages to draw it out. They use the scanners to depolarize, blah, blah, blah. And this blob heats up and explodes. Um, but don't worry, like, it's gone. It wasn't like a nuclear situation. Um, it just happened to explode. We're all fine. Cool, let's get out our Geiger counters and see if it's really truly gone and then suddenly explode again. Uh, and Royston's like, that, that second explosion shouldn't have happened. Dot, dot, dot. The end. So I don't know if my explanation kind of got across how fun this movie is. I really enjoyed this movie. Yeah, I could tell when we were watching it. That you were really getting into it. Uh, I don't hide my feelings very well. When no, I watch yeah, you a movie. are. You are very, yeah. You you're Easy very to read. earnest. You're very sincere, um, which is good. Um, and yeah, you clearly had a lot of fun with this. It's a very fun movie for sure. Yeah. Whenever someone was in danger, like when Willie first gets like alone in the woods, I was mm-hmm. just like, yeah. Yeah, you were get so him. excited. Get him. And then when the technician started like he sees something off screen and he looks horrified and the camera is moving up to him as if the camera is this blob and he is like freaking out and then you see his face start melting and I was going yeah just cheering for this man to get his face melted off yep that's true yep I'm a very nice person yes yes (laughs) But, um, you know, this is the thing about horror movies and being a horror movie fan is like you want to see the the grisly stuff. Yeah. And, you know, this is going to be the thing is like we're going to be getting more and more of it, you know, from from here on out. Right. It's it's going to start becoming a game of like how much can I put in the movie? Right. How much will they let me put in the movie? And right now I'm enjoying the peppering sure. throughout. Uh, I know that there will come a point where I will be like, hey, this is too much. Yeah, there will there will come a point where we go from it being peppered throughout the meal to you eating a pepper for the meal. Like, I want variety, <laughs> my guys. Um, this has, like, the science fiction horror element. It's definitely more horror than science fiction. 
Um, Certainly for the first like two thirds, I would say. Yeah. And what is interesting is like you could see how if this story idea was in the hands of like a 1940s horror writer, let's say Kurt Seedmack, um, Mm because he's the only one coming to mind. You could see how this could easily turn into a mad scientist thing. But this blob is actually the result of Dr. Royston's Mm. shed lab experiments. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he's actually like. Yes, (laughs) attack the children. Yeah. Instead, uh, this movie belongs very firmly to a subgenre of movie that doesn't really exist anymore that I'm a big fan of, but that you used to see quite a lot in British cinema in the 40s and 50s uh, that I like to call people competently doing their jobs. (laughs) Uh, So you can find, you know, movies like this with like A Night to Remember, for instance. That's Um, like 51 or 52 or something. No, I, th- mm, I don't remember offhand. It's in the 50s. It's a 1950s British film about the Titanic. It's very good. So everyone in this movie is like good at what they do. And the question of whether they'll be successful comes down to like, is what they do the right skill set for this job? But like nobody in this movie is like incompetent. Yeah. Um, And the movie is very much like plot focused and therefore very um, procedural in nature. And so, so the first half of the movie is very dedicated to like the investigation of like finding out like what's doing all this. And then once they figure it out, um, then the second half of the movie is dedicated to like, okay, how do we destroy it? Right. The scene where Royston gives his theory on what it is, is kind of like, I feel like the biggest hurdle for, for a potential audience with this movie, because it Mm -hmm. is, it is the point where like, you're like, wait, what? (laughs) It's, it's a little (laughs) ridiculous and you have to buy into it. And if you don't, I mean, if you don't, it's not the movie for you anyway. Um, I mean, he does try to present it in as like hedgy kind of way as possible, not in a like, Oh, I'm sorry that I'm giving forward this theory, but just in a like, you know, if this, then that. Yeah. And if that, then this is the conclusion. Yeah, which is science. And I yeah. mean, what he's admitting is like, we don't have any facts, really. And what we do have, you know, defies conventional science. So therefore, the answer is going to be something like weird and unconventional. And that's going to be hard to swallow. Right? Yeah. The British stiff upper lip thing is on full display here. Um, anyone in this movie who's like a professional. So army personnel, medical personnel, scientists, police, uh, they all react like coolly, calmly, rationally to like all these fantastic events going around them. Like nobody has like a, a breakdown or freaks out unless they are like a civilian. Or that they have seen the thing. Right. Yes. But like Peter sees the thing and he's not rendered into like a blithering Lovecraftian protagonist like idiot, right? Sure. Let me rephrase. If they see the effect of the thing on a person. Sure. Fair enough. <laughs> um, the reason why I bring this up though is like, so there's no romantic interest in this movie, like save for the doctor and the nurse trying to fuck in the radiation room. But like, there's nothing to distract us from the plot, from people doing their jobs. Like this is not a very like emotional movie. And similar to the casting of Brian Donlevy in the Quatermass experiment, the casting of Dean Jagger here creates this interesting subtext to the movie where like the 100% competent British people 
nevertheless lack the ability to like color outside the lines that you need in order to figure out like what's going on and then create a solution. And that's the skill that like an American has because like Royston and the elder Dr. Elliot, who's the administrator, like they argue over procedure, right? Like a, a very um, exemplary moment is when there's like a regularly scheduled experiment going on at the lab where they're just going to like test some cobalt or whatever. And the proper procedure is that like, you have to be like, all right, Dr. Elliot, we're ready to do the experiment. Then Dr. Elliot will be like, cool. It's okay for you to do the experiment. And they'll be like, cool, we're doing the experiment. And at the moment when they're about to do the experiment, um, Dr. Elliot's like, just can't be found. Like he's away from his office or something. So Royston's like, cool, we'll just go ahead with it anyways. And then Elliot gets like all pissed off at him about that later. He's like, you don't care anything about procedure. And it's like, it's not like this is a thing where like, you know, he did something super dangerous and reckless. It's just like he didn't call up the line to his boss to get permission to do his job before doing his job. And that's like this difference between him and Elliot. And like Elliot's the one who, like it's clear that he practically resents Royston for like coming in here and having ideas and for tempting his son into being a scientist rather than the bright future he has as a boring administrator like me. (laughs) And like, you know, he doesn't like that Royston does his own experiments and he thinks that Royston's experiments are bullshit. And like, he thinks that Royston's explanation of what the creature is, is bullshit largely because like he doesn't have an imagination. He's like, you know, one plus one equals two. Therefore, you know, I'm not interested in like what one plus negative one is because like negative one doesn't exist. Why are we having this conversation? One plus one equals two. And like, that's not a great attitude to have with regards to science if you're trying to discover things. Mm -hmm. But for like Dr. Elliot, he's just like running a lab and they have like jobs to do. And like, you just need to make sure that like the trains run on time, right? And so the impression you get is like the British can get things done, but you need an American to be the ideas man because they have imaginations. Sure. Like that's, and you know, I don't know if that's an intentional theme here, but with the fact that both Don Levy and Jagger are Americans and they're both playing these like, think outside the box, don't play by the rules scientists, you kind of get that impression. Sure. Um, I would argue that Dr. Royston does play by the rules, like for the most part, like he, he shirk, he, he cuts corners. He doesn't throw the rule book out. Okay. I guess what I should be saying is that like the, the bar for being a rebel feels much lower in British movies than in American (laughs) movies, right? Like if you want to say that like a scientist like plays by his own rules and he's like reckless and shit in an American movie, like you need to take a look at like this Island earth where Dr. Squarejaw deep voice is introduced by like testing his own fighter plane that he designed himself and like nearly getting killed or whatever. Whereas like here we know that Dr. Royston like is a maverick because like he you know, didn't. has a shed where he does his own side experiments. Yeah, he didn't phone his boss to ask permission to do things, right? Yeah, that's and so fair. I think it's just like a lower bar, you know? <laughs> um, you mentioned that um, the budget for this movie was $60,000, mm-hmm. and $30,000 went to... Uh, Dean Jagger's acting fee, yeah. Yeah, um, I think all of the other money went to the military and special effects... 
I feel like, so the movie starts with like a thank you to the war department. And I feel like they must've gotten all the like army uniforms and like Jeeps and like material for like free somehow because yeah, this movie looks like a million bucks and they made it for basically 30 K. Yeah. Um, the special effects look pretty good. Yeah. And I think this movie is another great example of your, uh, I guess like sort of uncanny Valley thing of like when you're so cheap, you shoot on location and it actually helps your movie versus mm-hmm. like having the money to not shoot on location and having that hinder your movie. Yeah. Um, because they are definitely on location unless they are interior shots. At first I thought the lab, the atomic energy lab that they were at was like a set. Our first shot of it is a big wide shot showing it has this huge high ceiling and all this stuff, but you didn't see any people on the second level at all. So I figured it was a set with like a map painting. Yeah. Right. Filling up the top. But then later when X the unknown attacks the lab, we see them offloading the radioactive cobalt in like a big truck and we can see the lab in the background through like a loading Mm -hmm. zone. Mm -hmm. And I was like, did they just go to a real atomic energy lab because like everything else in this movie. Yeah. Also feels like we're just there. We just went to these locations. So either that matte painting work is really well done Mm. or yeah, they shot on location. Yeah. The, the funny part is like the scene where the boys are going through the woods at night and it's like foggy and there's like a tower in the background. Yeah. It's a Scottish Moors. Right. But it was like, Oh, that's what these look like. This is the thing that they've been trying to fake on Universal movies for like 20 years at this point. One of the other things that hides the low budget on this movie is there's a lot of characters. Yeah. Like you tend to associate extras and big crowds with studio pictures and like there's just a lot of people in this movie, a lot of minor characters. Yeah. I found myself thinking like, were they paying the like extras like a shilling a day or something? <laughs> like what were they paying the kids in this movie? Like no, I in think... peanuts and candy? Yeah, it's like they went to an, a small town right. in, in like bumfuck nowhere, Scotland. Yeah. and Inverness. <laughs> I mean, yes, uh, they do call out Inverness as like a nearby town. Um, but they just like paid locals. Yeah. You get and, the, yeah. And it was kind of like a more like the pay is negligible because, Hey, you get to be in a movie. Yeah, for sure. For sure. But it really does make the movie feel bigger than like, yeah, like the, the $60,000 they spent on it. And what helps with that is so many people die. Mm, for like, sure. 10, I counted, Mm. 10 people die, but the majority of them are on screen and with that full meltage right in your face. Yeah, for sure. It's really good. I really like Dean Jagger's performance in this movie. I think he was worth the 30K. Um, He does a really good job of being convincing as a scientist. Like you get the impression that like science is his job and he's always thinking like and when he's talking to people it's clear that he's always like thinking like on the next thing that he's going to be talking about he comes off as curious and dedicated and like a bit absent-minded because he's always thinking but in a much more like believable way than most movie scientists who kind of take colin clive as their baseline model 
of what like a scientist looks like. Like the other thing that really helps his believability and, and the believability overall of a lot of these British movies is that Royston and you know, the other characters who are in charge here, but like Royston is a believably older man. Yeah. I liked that he had a cane and he doesn't, he doesn't use it properly in the sense of like, Mm. when someone actually needs a cane right. uses it. Um, but I, I did appreciate that he had it because it shows like he has a backstory. Yeah. You know, he's bald. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, he's clearly like older and that makes him believable as like the top atomic scientist energy guy in his <laughs> field. It also means that like, then we create the role of Peter to be the young guy who does all the physical stuff yeah. in the movie. But, like, I think about this a lot, this thing that, like, movies, you know, TV have become increasingly obsessed with youth. Yeah. To a point where it's really started to hurt believability of characters. And I think also, like, you know, maybe on some grander sociological level, like, also pushed a kind of unrealistic view to people of maybe how much they should have achieved in their life by the time they're 30. Because like right now it feels like movies are telling us that like your life is over when you're 30. Like once you're 30, like you, that's when the, and they lived happily ever after and the book closes. Right. Which is funny because even the 20 year olds in Hollywood movies are usually played by like 30 year olds. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I think of characters like um, the guy on Criminal Minds who's like 21 and has five degrees or whatever. Well, he's an anomaly and shouldn't be counted. Or like the fact that in the Star Trek reboot movies with Chris Pine, it's like, oh, yeah, you're like 22 and you just got out of the Academy. We're just going to throw you the captaincy of a starship. So I looked something up. Uh, the BBC remade the Quatermass experiment, the original serial um, for TV in 2005 as like a live TV thing as kind of a gimmick. And the actor who played Quatermass in that movie was in the remake was 39. uh, Whereas Reginald Tate in the original was 57. So still up there, but not as up there. Well, and like 39 is like the age that like, you know, I think Daniel Craig was like 38 when he started playing James Bond and stuff. But that's as old as you're like allowed to be as a hero yeah. in a movie yeah. nowadays, right? Um, like a young old. Right. And so I really liked that Royston was older and a lot of the characters are older, right? And like Peter, who's younger, is like explicitly like, oh, this is a young promising man on the rise. And he's still probably like 30 something, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, um, he definitely doesn't look like he's in his 20s. Right. Like it is a continuing factor that I notice in a lot of old British movies is they have a believability to them. They cast actors who look like real people, real people and who would be those real people in that situation. I think modern British cinema has trended towards the Hollywood model more and more in terms of casting like gorgeous, thin young people in all the roles. But for this movie, I think it really helps. Mm -hmm. I did like the music though. The version that we happened to watch uh, had really bad sound mixing to the point where the music was like overwhelming. So that might be just the version that we watched. So that that's like maybe the only thing that kind of held this movie back, in my opinion, in terms of quality. But I did really like the music. It's tough because British films, especially older British films, tend to have bad sound mixing. Yeah. Where they tend to, um, maybe it's that realism thing again, but like 
if someone's in a crowded party in a British movie, like you're just going to get their dialogue and all of the like surrounding crowd dialogue at like the same volume. We got that in this movie right. when they're in like the lunchroom. Yeah, exactly. Um, or like background sound effects or if there's like a loud Jeep in the background and you, we got all that in this movie. I did start to suspect that maybe something was off about the copy we were watching when the music was so loud I couldn't hear people because the only time I've seen that in a movie before was in Twin Peaks Firewalks With Me, which was being done totally on purpose because that's a David Lynch movie and he likes to fuck around. Whereas I don't really feel like in the 50s these guys were intentionally trying to fuck around. Yeah. That being said, like I said, like the music. It's, it was good. Another great thing in this movie's favor is it has like very shadowy atmospheric cinematography, like no army training film blandness here. Uh, You know, it's more of a like dark, shadowy, smoky, moody, moody, atmospheric. Yeah. Like I I think, you know, Leslie Norman does a really good job with this movie. Too bad he was a dick. (laughs) Yeah, definitely too bad he was a dick. Um, I wasn't sure how this movie was going to go because it seemed very clear that Norman wasn't really interested in this kind of movie and that usually tanks a genre movie. Um, So it was nice to see that he was able to pull this off. I think it goes to show that the person that they had as director before uh, Norman came on um, had the right idea in terms of who they cast um the sets all of that all of the pre-production stuff great monster Mm -hmm. good effects uh really realistic radiation burns by the way the radiation burns in this movie like look like what radiation burns look like um great melting people as we've said yeah it uh it looked really good the and the acting as someone is melting was really good too and as you kind of mentioned we're predating the blob here by two years in terms of this style of monster um which is pretty cool so this is 1956 right i feel like the Typical structure of a Godzilla movie, like you said, doesn't really come in until like the 60s. But yeah. I was curious when Godzilla raids again and some of those other sequels were released. Well, I think the important thing to remember is that Godzilla King of the Monsters wasn't released in its Godzilla King of the Monsters English Raymond Burr form until 56. Okay. So in terms of like what Japanese monster movies the people making this movie might have had inspiration from, it would have just been the first one, which doesn't really have the structure that you're thinking of when you think of Mm -hmm. why this movie's familiar. So to lay that out for our listeners, like... So there's something radioactive and weird. We investigate, either by a scientist or a reporter. The weird thing gets worse, so the military is brought in, and that's when we see the thing, usually. Um, We investigate a solution, we do the solution, and either it works or it doesn't. If it doesn't work, we go back to investigating the solution, we do the solution, and either it works or it doesn't. And if it doesn't, we blah, 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 blah. That's the usual structure of those movies. The thing that's familiar and why you'll start, like, humming, like, Akira Fukube's uh, theme for the Japanese army (laughs) while you watch this movie is because the creature's very big. Um, like it grows throughout the movie. So by the end, it's like slurping through Inverness, like, you know, at full kind of blobby kaiju size. The thing with those Godzilla movies or those other monster movies from Japan is there's usually like 
something that we think works and usually the scientist or lead character is like that's not gonna work and then we think it works so everybody like ignores the monster for a while and then it comes back in the original godzilla that's when they like use the depth charges and then everyone's like yeah whatever and like this happens a lot it'll be like oh they electrocuted him it should be fine now or whatever and then it doesn't and here we have the we poured flamethrowers and bombs down the fissure and then we poured concrete under it like what (laughs) what more do you want us to do Um, oh man that was so great and so bombing the fuck out of that pit so you know when the scientist says yeah that's not gonna hold it you know it's not gonna hold it and then the thing that really made it feel like those movies is the fact that we get the small scale experiment in the scientist's lab that shows you how the solution is supposed to work. And then we build that on a massive scale and mount it to a couple of trucks. And then we do it to the monster. Like that's very Kaiju movie. Like where you have, you know, the, um, the like, yeah, they made like lasers. The like, yeah, the lasers that they shoot at the aliens in like invasion of Astro monster, the masers from, uh, were the gargantuas, the like weird um, lights uh, in Godzilla versus Hedera. Like, but it's always mounted on the top of like a big army truck. And it's usually like a thing that like spins yeah. to look cool. <laughs> and um, that's what these scanners do. Yeah. But these aren't models. These well, are real. Yeah. They, they, they've got some big things on a real big truck. Yeah. But that, that's kind of like, the similarities there. And I just thought it was interesting that, you know, we're seeing that in this movie where there's no relation between the two. This is what they call, um, parallel evolution. Yeah. Yeah. The, the thing to point out, if you are a big fan of those movies is while this blob gets big enough to slurp through a town, um, it doesn't like destroy any buildings or like Mm -hmm kill whole crowds of people or like smash landmarks. It almost gets this chubby little girl who uh, didn't get to the shelter in time, but she's fine. She's fine. The pastor gets her. I think, so I mentioned that the sound mixing was one thing that held this movie back. Mm. The only other thing I think that really held this movie back is that it's not about anything. You know, it doesn't have one of those like big themes, Mm. like, like Godzilla did or like cat people did. It, it makes an effort. I think it it reaches at something because when little Willie dies, his dad comes up to, um, and gives this impassioned, if somewhat crazy speech misled. Yeah. Where he basically is like angry because Royston isn't a real doctor. Uh, Cause he doesn't, he's not a medical doctor. So he's not a real doctor. And so he's a scientist and scientists don't help people. They just think of ways to hurt people. Cause you guys invented the atom bomb. So you're bad. And I blame you for Willie's death because you exist. And well, he died of radiation burns. Yeah, so but like Royston didn't invent radiation. Yeah. I'm just saying. Yeah. Anyways, after that moment, uh, Royston's talking to Mac and he says like that he's trying to create as a scientist, not destroy. And, you know, his invention is designed to like basically make radioactive material safe in a very short amount of time without causing an explosion. And, you know, Peter points out that like that means it could disable atomic bombs. And so there's like this sense that Royston's trying to like, as I mentioned earlier, like redeem atomic science. And I think that's 
as close as the movie gets to a theme. Yeah. But it does sort of fall into the same kind of generic, like, we've done something that we shouldn't have done thing that a lot of these movies go for. Um, you know, they try to kind of make this monster coming up and attacking us like they, retribution. Right. Like they kind of put it into the, it's our fault thing because the whole thing's brought up that like, if we hadn't had radioactive science, like it would have just gone back down in the hole again. But um, like, but it's not very, yeah, it's not well very developed. Well done. It's just sort of there in yeah. the background. It's not like the big theme of the movie. I also think it's very interesting that, you know, across the pond, as they say, mm-hmm. we have horror being developed in the UK that is like sci-fi horror. Mm. Whereas in the States, it's kind of like sci-fi horror, you know, where the emphasis is. And you definitely get the horror in X the Unknown. Agreed. Um, seeing people's reactions, actually seeing people die. Uh, this blob is very threatening. Um, it's very kept in shadows until the big reveal. Um, it's very much horror. Uh, yet in the U.S., it uh, it's struggling to find its footing in the midst of sci-fi. Well, I think the feeling that I get from like, you know, let's say the Roger Corman movies, uh, for example, just because we're seeing a fuck ton of them. Um, <laughs> but they also are doing that sci-fi horror yes. balance. So the impression I get from a lot of those is that they are science fiction movies that have learned that you have to put a monster into the movie in order for it to sell. Yeah. Right. And that's why you get that sci-fi horror thing where it's like, this is a story about an alien intelligence from across the stars that has come to like mind control us and set us against one another. And the film's really about like paranoia and like the way that you can't really understand like a completely alien intelligence. But also Paul Blaisdell over here made us like a paper mache man and he's walking around on like a little scooter underneath there and we're going to light him on fire later. (laughs) And... Whereas, Don't light Pavley's still on fire, please. Whereas, like, over in the UK, it's more of this, like, feeling that what we want to do is we want to make some horror movies. But the way we're going to, like, slip it past the BBFC is like, oh, no, this is this is okay, is by making it science fiction, right? So that these movies are like... Yeah, so there's, like, a scientist, and, like, he's doing some stuff, and, you know, he's got some ideas about, like, radiation and, like, the origin of the Earth and so on and so forth. So then the slimy monster kills the two people trying to fuck, and you see (laughs) one of them just fucking melt right in front of you. (laughs) You know, like, the emphasis is in a different place here. Absolutely. All right, well, since we're already kind of, like, comparing our apples and our oranges here. Uh, Why don't we move on to ranking? That sounds great. So where were you looking? I have a very narrow range. So do I. Uh Uh-oh. Will they intersect? Who knows? So I think the logical place to start is the Quatermass experiment, which is currently ranked at number 15. Very high. Very high. Um, again, if people want to listen back to that episode, that's episode 182. I personally found X the Unknown to be better. Oh no, your face tells me this is possibly wrong. Anyway, so I thought it was better. Above Quatermass Experiment, we have The Body Snatcher, Son of Frankenstein, 
And then I stopped at Isle of the Dead at number 12. Isle of the Dead is about that paranoia, the uh, paranoia of a pandemic, which we all are feeling. Um, And Boris Karloff is fucking amazing. And that lady screaming in the coffin is fucking amazing. Um, So I was just like, yeah, no, this isn't going above Isle of the Dead. But I thought, you know, this might be really interesting to compare to Son of Frankenstein. Son of Frankenstein came out in 1939 as kind of like the renaissance of horror after it getting completely demolished um, by Dracula's daughter slash the code. And thinking about the way Son of Frankenstein revitalized horror and the way that the British are revitalizing horror uh, in their industry with X the Unknown and Quartermass Experiment and other things. I think that's really interesting to compare. And then, of course, Body Snatcher is also set in Scotland. Um, right. And, yeah, I, I don't know. I think, like, Body Snatcher is really fucking good, but it's a pretty, like, limited threat zone, if you know what I mean, versus X the Unknown. You see a blob, you fucked. So that was my small range. Tell me yours, please. So like you, I started by looking at the Quatermass experiment. Um, Again, felt that was a natural place to start. I liked the Quatermass experiment better than this movie. I think this movie certainly continues to like push the envelope of what Hammer's doing. But I think I liked Quatermass experiment better because I liked Brian Donlevy's Quatermass better as a central character. He was more interesting to me because while Royston is also an American scientist who, you know, has the ability to think outside the box that the British around him don't have, um, Royston comes off as like very amiable. Like it's almost kind of ridiculous when Dr. Elliot's getting upset with him. It just it's clear that the point there is that Dr. Elliot's a stick in the mud, not that like Royston's a maverick. And you prefer the maverick. The maverick's more interesting, particularly what I find more interesting is the theme in Quatermass experiment of like, so this crazy scientist who fucking went all Reed Richards on us and just launched his own rocket up into space because who tells Quatermass what to do? Nobody. Uh, he's really royally fucked up because his rocket brought back a weird, horrible monster that's killing things. Um, so it's all his fault. Unfortunately, he's also the only person who we can trust to actually fix this problem too. And Quatermass has such a like, the version of Quatermass in that movie, the Brian Donlevy version, has such a like prickly exterior where it's like clear that like he's, all he cares about is getting the job done. It's like, Dr. Quatermass, like, the monster has killed five more people. Gross. Well, moving on to the next place. And the best part of that movie, like, both of these movies have, like, really fun kind of endings that make you, like, kind of go, huh? Wait, what? This movie has the ending where, you know, they blow up the monster. And everyone's like, wow, like, Dr. Royston, like, your ideas worked. And he's like, yeah, I guess they did. And then the fissure just blows up again. And they're like, wait, what the fuck was that? And Royston's like, I don't know. That wasn't supposed to happen. And then the movie just ends. And it's like, uh, <laughs> um, which is really cool. I really like that. Um, and it's similar to the Quatermass experiment ending where after they've destroyed the monster and there's like 
people are dead and like it's a tragedy and like it happened on live TV and like all of these things. And it's clear that like everyone else around Quatermass is like super bummed out by all the events. And one of his like assistants or whatever comes up to him and is like, so what are we doing now? And he's like, oh, now we're going to build another rocket and try again. And then we see the other rocket go up. And it's just clear that like Quatermass doesn't care. Like it's like, well, the first trip clearly wasn't a success time to move on to the second one and i just find that character more interesting than royston and i find the note that it leaves the movie on to be more unsettling because x the unknown sort of leaves this with this message that like science it's not an exact science (laughs) right but the quatermass experiment leaves us with this message of like So that crazy scientist whose fault all this was, but who we reluctantly had to turn to to fix everything. Yeah, he's he's just still out. Yeah, like he's just still the guy in charge because there's nobody better to do it. And that's like very unsettling. Um, So I actually like Queer Mass Experiment better. Now, the problem with that is... You know, because you liked X the Unknown more, you started looking above Quatermass Experiment and very quickly found movies that, like, are clearly better and ended up with this very narrow range. Looking below Quatermass Experiment, there's a lot of movies that, like, I wasn't sure if they were better or worse than X the Unknown. So I went down trying to find, for sure, a movie that I could definitely point to and be like, no... Like, definitely, this is probably better, you know, and try to find that range. I got all the way down to number 39, House of Wax. And comparing X the Unknown with House of Wax, X the Unknown is a good horror movie for, like, the first two-thirds, and then it shifts gear into kind of being more like a giant monster movie. Um, And House of Wax is definitely a horror movie, like, all the way through. So I kind of made House of Wax a ceiling because right below House of Wax... There's Queen of Spades, which is a good movie, but it's also a movie that kind of feels like embarrassed to be a horror movie sometimes. I started looking below House of Wax and I was like, okay, well, what is X the Unknown definitely better than? And I landed on The Black Sleep because I wanted to give the possibility that dementia was better than this. Um, So I ended up with this range of 40 to 46. Now that's way below where you're looking. Yeah. Um, the midpoint, uh, in our two ranges would be about 27 and that's Nosferatu. Um, and above Nosferatu is Cabin of Dr. Caligari and below that is Kurota Ichipeji because we just have this like weird little block of artsy silent movie horrors that are very hard to compare to anything but each other. Um, I think looking right below Kurotage, even though like it's really hard to compare X the unknown to these three movies. Cause it's like, Oh, well these are so artistic and they have such a <laughs> distinct like visual identity and they're so influential on generations and decades of horror and blah, blah, blah. But right below Kurotage page, I see creature from the black lagoon. And if you want to tell me that X the unknown is better than creature from the black lagoon, I'll believe you. That is what I want to tell you right above Cabin of Dr. Caligari is Return of the Vampire, which is also a very fun movie set in the UK, but is about vampires and werewolves. And if you want to tell me that X the Unknown is better than Return of the Vampire, I'll probably believe you. 
I do want to tell you that. Right above Return of the Vampire, though, is Invasion of the Body Snatchers and The Thing from Another World and The Wolfman and Ferryman Maria. And that's when I start to, like, get into feelings of, like, well, is this better? Like, how does X the Unknown really stack up against Invasion of the Body Snatchers or Thing from Another World? Because as you pointed out, X the Unknown isn't really about anything. Yeah. And all the movies that are above Return of the Vampire on the list are about something. That's fair. I guess I'm thinking about the quality and uniqueness of this blob, as well as the grisly nature of melting faces on screen. I will definitely give you that the grisly deaths are fun, especially when we've been doing this show for 190 something episodes 195 195 and you know we've we've coming up on 200 that's right we've watched a lot of movies and it's like oh finally are we finally getting to gore is gore (laughs) finally going to be a thing will we have blood soon like so I, i understand that excitement i think this isn't something we normally do on the show in terms of how we decide to rank things but i think you should keep in mind that there are going to be better and gorier horror movies from Hammer very shortly. <laughs> so, like, we don't need to give X the Unknown all the credit in the world for having melting people. Sure. Um, okay, so melting people aside, <laughs> thinking about the way that this movie handles horror, um, the atmospheric nature of it, the way it handles tension... Um, with someone seeing something off screen and that being terrifying. You know, I think that that we're in the right spot or the right area. And the fact that it's not really about anything, I think also really hampers it. So what do you think of below Invasion of the Body Snatchers, but above the Return of the Vampire? Yeah, I'm really good with that. Cool, let's do that then. So entering the list at the new number 25, it's X, The Unknown from 1956, directed by Leslie Norman. So I guess X equals 25. Right. Yeah. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links for all of the many episodes we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter, at underscore Scream Scene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. If you subscribe to our RSS feed, you can listen to us on whatever podcasting app you choose to. And if you really enjoy the show, um, we'd really like it if you could help us out by sharing the show on social media, by leaving us a rating or a review, telling a friend about the show, or heading over to our Patreon. As we mentioned earlier in the episode, you can head over to patreon.com slash podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Just like Yone did. If you sign up at higher levels, like the $5 or $10 level, you get access to bonus material. Uh, The $5 level gets you access to regular bonus audio cut from past episodes, while the $10 level gets you access to bonus horror writing. That's movie reviews, that's short stories. Um, It also includes things like audiobooks and albums of music and all kinds of 
cool, neat projects that we've done over the years that you can enjoy in our library of Patreon episodes. As we mentioned earlier in this episode, our HUAC episode was a Patreon exclusive. Um, so definitely head over to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast, sign up, check out all that cool stuff. We will really appreciate it. So Ben, what are we watching next week? Well, interestingly, this week's movie was about like a, a threat from beneath the earth. Yeah. So is next week's. Oh. We're heading back to the U.S. and we're joining our old friends at Universal International for the mole people. Oh my god. Okay, great. Looking forward to it. Yeah. <laughs> See you next week, creatures of the night. Bye. Bye. Bye.